This is Pastor Eli James now with part three of our series on the antiquities of Judah and the conflict between the royal house of David in Judea in the days of Herod and Antipater and the conflict between that house and the Edomite Jews which will culminate in the execution of Jesus the Christ. We are now in Book 14, Chapter 11, How Mercus Succeeded Sextus When He Had Been Slain by Bassus Treachery, and How After the Death of Caesar, Cassius Came into Syria and Distressed Judea, as also how Malichus slew Antipater, and was himself slain by Herod. So we can see all kinds of treachery, backstabbing, and people slaying each other, as was the case for most of history. Before republics came and people elected their leaders, and they were assassinated by outsiders, such as in America. Anyway, paragraph one. Now it so fell out that about this very time the affairs of Syria were in a great disorder. And this on the occasion following. Cecilius Bassus, one of Pompey's party, laid a treacherous design against Sextus Caesar and slew him, and then took his army and got the management of public affairs into his own hand. So there arose a great war about Apamia, while Caesar's generals came out against him with an army of horsemen and footmen. To these Antipater sent also succors, and his sons with them, as calling to mind the kindnesses they had received from Caesar, and on that account he thought it but just to require punishment for him, and to take vengeance on the man that had murdered him. And as the war was drawn out into a great length, Mercus came from Rome to take Sextus' government upon him, but Caesar was slain by Cassius and Brutus in the Senate house after he had retained the government three years and six months. This fact, however, is related elsewhere. End of paragraph one. And for clarification, it should be noticed that Sextus Caesar was a cousin of Julius Caesar. They were apparently slain around the same time by the rebel Pompey. So let's continue with, and his allies, of course. Paragraph 2. As the war that arose upon the death of Caesar was now begun, and the principal men were all gone, some one way and some another, to raise armies, Cassius came from Rome into Syria in order to receive the army that lay in the camp at Apamia. And having raised the siege he brought over both Bassus and Mercus to his party. He then went over the cities and got together weapons and soldiers and laid great taxes upon those cities. And he chiefly oppressed Judea and exacted of it 700 talents. But Antipater, when he saw the state to be in so great consternation and disorder, he divided the collection of that sum and appointed his sons to gather it and so that part of it was to be exacted by Malichus, who was ill-disposed to him, and part by others. And because Herod did exact what is required of him from Galilee, 
before others, he was in the greatest favor with Cassius, for he thought it a part of prudence to cultivate a friendship with the Romans and to gain their goodwill at the expense of others, whereas the curators of other cities, with their citizens, were sold for slaves, and Cassius reduced four cities into a state of slavery, the two most potent of which were Gophna and Emmaus, and besides these, Lydda and Tamna. Nay, Cassius was so very angry at Malichus that he had killed him, for he assaulted him. Had not Hyrcanus, by the means of Antipater, sent him a hundred talents of his own, and thereby pacified his anger against him. Paragraph 3. But after Cassius was gone out of Judea, Malichus laid snares for Antipater, as thinking that his death would be the preservation of Hyrcanus' government. But his design was not unknown to Antipater, which when he perceived he retired beyond Jordan and got together an army, partly of Arabs and partly of his own countrymen, which would be Edomites. However, Malichus, being one of great cunning, denied that he had laid any snares for him and made his defense with an oath both to himself and his sons, and said that while Phasaelus had a garrison in Jerusalem, and Herod had the weapons of war in custody, he could never have thought of any such thing. So Antipater, perceiving the distress that Malichus was in, was reconciled to him and made an agreement with him. This was when Mercus was president of Syria, who yet perceiving that this Malichus was making a disturbance in Judea, proceeded so far that he had almost killed him. But still, at the intercession of Antipater, he saved him. So actually Antipater saved Malichus's life. And I guess this is a payback in kind. Verse 4, I mean paragraph 4. However, Antipater little thought that by saving Malichus he had saved his own murderer. <laughs> For now Cassius and Mercus had got together an army and entrusted the entire care of it with Herod and made him general of the forces of Coalisyria and gave him a fleet of ships and an army of horsemen and footmen, and promised him that after the war was over they would make him king of Judea. For a war was already begun between Antony and the younger Caesar. But as Malichus was most afraid of Antipater, he took him out of the way, and by the offer of money persuaded the butler of Hyrcanus, with whom they were both to feast, to kill him by poison. This being done, and he having armed men with him, settled the affairs of the city. But when Antipater's sons, Herod and Phasaelus, were acquainted with this conspiracy against their father, and had indignation at it, Malichus denied all, and utterly renounced any knowledge of the murder. And thus died Antipater, a man that had distinguished himself for piety and justice and love to his country? Really? Maybe he's talking about Edom. And whereas one of his sons, Herod, resolved immediately to revenge their father's death and was coming upon Malichus with an army for that purpose, the elder of his sons, Phasaelus, thought it best rather to get this man into their hands by policy, lest they should appear to begin a civil war in the country. So he accepted of Malichus's defense for himself and pretended to believe him, that he had no hand in the violent death of Antipater, his father, but erected a fine monument for him. Herod also went to Samaria 
and when he found them in great distress, he revived their spirits and composed their differences. Paragraph 5. However, a little after this, Herod, upon the approach of a festival, came with his soldiers into the city, whereupon Malichus was affrighted and persuaded Hyrcanus not to permit him to come into the city. Hyrcanus complied, and for a pretense of excluding him, alleged that a rout of strangers ought not to be admitted while the multitude were purifying themselves. But Herod had little regard to the messengers that were sent to him, and entered the city in the night time, and affrighted Malichus, yet did he remit nothing of his former dissimulation, but wept for Antipater. So he, he feigned not, now, uh, not knowing the Malichus, or at least the suspicion that Malichus had killed his father, and prevailed him <laughs> as a friend of his with a loud voice, and wailed him as a friend, etc. But Herod and his friends thought it proper not to openly contradict Malichus's hypocrisy, but to give him tokens of mutual friendship in order to prevent his suspicion of them. I guess we could call this statesmanship. Paragraph 6. However, Herod sent to Cassius and informed him of the murder of his father, who, knowing what sort of man Malichus was as to his morals, sent him back word that he should revenge his father's death and also sent privily to the commanders of his army at Tyre with orders to assist Herod in the execution of a very just design. Now when Cassius had taken Laodicea, they all went together to him and carried him garlands and money, and Herod thought that Malichus might be punished while he was there. But he was somewhat apprehensive of the thing and designed to make some great attempt, and because his son was then a hostage at Tyre, he went to that city and resolved to steal him away privately and to march thence into Judea. And as Cassius was in haste to march against Antony, he thought to bring the country to revolt and to procure the government for himself. But Providence opposed his counsels, and Herod, being a shrewd man, and perceiving what his intention was, he sent thither beforehand a servant, in appearance indeed to get a supper ready, for he had said before that he would feast them all there, but in reality to the commanders of the army whom he persuaded to go out against Malichus with their daggers. So they went out and met the man near the city upon the seashore, and there stabbed him. Whereupon Hyrcanus was so astonished at what has happened that his speech failed him, and when after some difficulty he had recovered himself, he asked Herod what the matter could be and who it was that slew Malichus. And when he said that it was done by the command of Cassius, he commended the action, for that Malichus was very wicked man, and one that conspired against his own country. And this was the punishment that was inflicted upon Malichus for what he wickedly did to Antipater. Okay, I guess what goes around comes around. Paragraph 7. But when Cassius was marched out of Syria, disturbances arose in Judea. For Felix, who was left at Jerusalem with an army, made a sudden attempt against Phasaelus, and the people themselves rose in arms. But Herod went to Fabius, the prefect of Damascus, and was desirous to run to his brother's assistance, but was hindered by a distemper that seized upon him, till Phasaelus himself had been too hard for Felix, and shut him up in the tower 
and there, on certain conditions, dismissed him. Phasaelus also complained of Hyrcanus that although he had received a great many benefits from them, yet did he support their enemies. For Malichus's brother had made many places to revolt and kept garrisons in them, and in particular Masada, the strongest fortress of them all. In the meantime, Herod was recovered of his disease and came and took from Felix all the palaces he had gotten and upon certain conditions dismissed him also. End of chapter 11. Now, chapter 12. Herod ejects Antigonus, the son of Aristobulus, out of Judea and gains the friendship of Antony, who was now come into Syria, by sending him much money, on which account he would not admit of those that would have accused Herod. And what it was that Antony wrote to the Tyrians on behalf of the Judahites. Paragraph 1. Now Ptolemy, the son of Menaeus, brought back into Judea Antigonus, the son of Aristobulus, who had already raised an army and had, by money, made Fabius to be his friend, and this because he was of kin to him. Marion also gave him assistance. He had been left by Cassius to tyrannize over Tyre, for this Cassius was a man that seized on Syria and then kept it under in the way of a tyrant. Marion also marched into Galilee, which lay in his neighborhood, and took three of its fortresses and put garrisons into them to keep them. But when Herod came, he took them all from him. But the Tyrian garrison he dismissed in a very civil manner. Nay, to some of the soldiers he made presents out of the goodwill he bare to that city. When he had dispatched these affairs and was gone to meet Antigonus, he joined battle with him and beat him and drove him out of Judea presently, when he was just come into its borders. But when he was come to Jerusalem, Hyrcanus and the people put garlands about his head, for he had already contracted an affinity with the family of Hyrcanus by having espoused a descendant of his, and for that reason Herod took the greater care of him as being to marry the daughter of Alexander, the son of Aristobulus, and the granddaughter of Hyrcanus by which wife he became the father of three male and two female children. He had also married before this another wife, out of a lower family of his own nation, that is the Edomites, whose name was Doris, by whom he had his eldest son, Antipater. So he had a son named Antipater and a father named Antipater. So here, Herod marries into the family of Judah. Let's continue now, paragraph 2 of chapter 12. Now Antoninus and Caesar had beaten Cassius near Philippi, as others have retreated, or related, rather. But after the victory, Caesar went into Gaul, which has to be Upper Italy, and Antony marched into Asia, who, when he was arrived at Bithynia, he had ambassadors that met for him from all parts. The principal men also of the Judahites came thither to accuse Phasaelus and Herod, and they said that Hyrcanus had indeed the appearance of reigning, but that these men had all the power. But Antony paid great respect to Herod, who was come to him to make his defense against his accusers, on which account his adversaries could not so much as obtain a hearing, which favor Herod had gained of Antony by money. <laughs> Here again, Herod's money saves him. So again, this is more proof 
that the true Judahites were still in lower positions in the government, but the the Herodians, now it's proper to call them Herodians, the Idumean Jews, the Herodians, had all the power, and of course, they had Rome's military might backing them up. Continuing, but still, when Antony was come to Ephesus, Hyrcanus the high priest and our nation sent an embassage to him which carried a crown of gold with them and desired that he would write to the governors of the provinces to set those Judahites free who had been carried captive by Cassius, and this without their having fought against him, and to restore them that country which in the days of Cassius had been taken from them. Antony thought the Judahites' desires were just, and wrote immediately to Hyrcanus and to the Judahites. He also sent, at the same time, a decree to the Tyrians, the contents of which were to the same purpose. Paragraph 3. Marcus Antonius, Imperator, to Hyrcanus, the high priest and ethnarch of the Judahites, sendeth greeting. If you be in health, it is well. I am also in health with the army. Lysimachus, the son of Pausanias, and Josephus, the son of Menaeus, and Alexander, the son of Theodorus, your ambassadors, met me at Ephesus and have renewed the embassage which they had formerly been upon at Rome and have diligently acquainted themselves of the present embassage, which thou and thy nations have entrusted to them and have fully declared the good will thou hast for us. I am therefore satisfied both by your actions and your words that you are well disposed to us, and I understand that your conduct of life is constant and religious. So I reckon you as our own. But when those that were adversaries to you and to the Roman people abstained neither from cities nor temples and did not observe the agreement they had confirmed by oath, it was not only on account of our contest with them, but on account of all mankind in common, that we have taken vengeance on those who have been the authors of great injustices toward men and of great wickedness towards the gods, for the sake of which we suppose that it was that the sun turned away his light from us, as unwilling to view the horrid crime they were guilty of in the case of Caesar. We have also overcome their conspiracies, which threatened the gods themselves, which Macedonia received, as it is a climate peculiarly proper for impious and insolent attempts. And we have overcome that confused rout of men, half mad with spite against us, which they got together at Philippi in Macedonia, when they seized on the places that were proper for that purpose, and as it were, walled them round with mountains to the very sea, and where the passage was open only through a single gate. This victory we gained because the gods had condemned these wicked enterprises. Now Brutus, when he had fled as far as Philippi, was shut up by us and became a partaker of the same perdition with Cassius, and now these have received their punishment. We suppose that we may enjoy peace from time to come, and that Asia may be at rest from war. And of course, by Asia is meant the Middle East, not the Far East. We therefore make that peace which, which God hath given us common to our confederates also, insomuch that the body of Asia is now recovered out of that distemper it was 
in under by means of our victory. I, therefore, bearing in mind both thee and your nation, shall take care of what may be for your advantage. I have also sent epistles in writing to the several cities, that if any persons, whether freemen or bondmen, have been sold under the spear by Caius Cassius or his subordinate officers, they may be set free. And I will that you kindly make use of the favors which I and Dolabella have granted you. I also forbid the Tyrians to use any violence with you, and for what places of the Judahites they now possess, I order them to restore them. I have withal accepted of the crown which thou sentest me, unquote. End of paragraph 3. A quick comment here. Given the shifting alliances of people before and after the assassination of Julius Caesar, this put the various cities of Judah and the people, the true Judahites, in a precarious position, namely, who do we support? And so, fortunately, in the case of Mark Antony, he supported the Judahites because he understood the uh, perilous situation everybody was in. Now, paragraph four. Uh, Continuing, quotation, Mercus Antonius Imperator to the magistrates, Senate and people of Tyre, send us greeting. The ambassadors of Hyrcanus, the high priest and ethnarch of the Judahites, appeared before me at Ephesus and told me that you are in possession of a part of their country, which you entered upon under the government of our adversaries. Since, therefore, we have undertaken a war for the obtaining of the government and have taken care to do what was agreeable to piety and justice and have brought to punishment those that had neither any remembrance of the kindness they had received nor have kept their oaths, I will that you be at peace with those that are our confederates. As also, that what you have taken by the means of our adversaries shall not be reckoned your own, but be returned to those from whom you took them. For none of them took their provinces or their armies by the gift of the Senate, but they seized them by force and bestowed them by violence upon such as became useful to them in their unjust proceedings. Since, therefore, these men have received the punishment due them, we desire that our confederates may retain whatsoever it was that they formerly possessed without disturbance, and that you restore all the places which belong to Hyrcanus, the ethnarch of the Judahites, which you have had, though it were but one day before Caius Cassius began an unjustifiable war against us, and entered into our province. Nor do you use any force against him in order to weaken him, that he may not be able to dispose of that which is his own. But if you have any contest with him about your respective rights, it shall be lawful for you to plead your cause when we come upon the places concerned, for we shall alike preserve the rights and hear all the causes of our confederates. Unquote. End of paragraph 4. Continuing with the quotation of Mark Antony's statement. Paragraph 5. Marcus Antonius Imperator to the magistrate, senate, the people of Tyre, sendeth greeting. I have sent you my decree, of which I will that ye take care that it be engraven on the public tables, in the Roman and Greek letters, that it stand engraven in the most illustrious places, that it may be read by all. Marcus Antonius Imperator, 
one with a triumvirate over the public affairs, made this declaration. Since Caius Cassius, in this revolt hath made, hath pillaged that province which belonged not to him, and was held by garrisons there encamped, while they were our confederates, and hath spoiled that nation of the Judahites, which was in friendship with the Roman people, as in war. And since we have overcome this madness by arms, we now correct by our decrees and judicial determinations what he hath laid waste, that those things may be restored to our confederates, and as for what hath been sold of the Judahite possessions, whether they be bodies or possessions, let them be released, the bodies into that state of freedom they were originally in, and the possessions to their former owners. I also will that he who shall not comply with this decree of mine shall be punished for his disobedience, and if such a one be caught, I will take care that the offenders suffer condign punishment, unquote. Paragraph 6. The same thing did Antony write to the Sidonians and the Antiochians and the Arabians. We have produced these decrees, therefore, as marks for futurity of the truth of what we have said, and that the Romans had a great concern about our nation. End of chapter 12. Chapter 13, how Antony made Herod and Phasaelus tetrarchs, after they had been accused to no purpose, and how the Parthians, when they brought Antigonus into Judea, took Hyrcanus and Phasaelus captives, Herod's flight, and what afflictions Hyrcanus and Phasaelus endured. And before I start paragraph one, I should remark that Josephus, being a Judahite, but also a general in the Roman army, had to be careful how he stated things. So, because Mark Antony was an ally of Judea at this time, he was careful to pronounce good words upon Herod, even though Josephus must have understood, absolutely did understand, that Herod was an Edomite and not a Judahite. Paragraph 1. When after this, Antony came into Syria, Cleopatra met him in Cilicia and brought him to fall in love with her. And there came now also a hundred of the most potent of the Judahites to accuse Herod and those about him and set the men of the greatest eloquence among them to speak. But Masala contradicted them on behalf of the young men, and all this in the presence of Hyrcanus, who was Herod's father-in-law already, of course, he having married into his family. When Antony had heard both sides at Daphne, he asked Hyrcanus who they were that governed the nation best. He replied, Herod and his friends. Hereupon, Antony, by reason of the old hospitable friendship he had made with his father, Antipater, at that time when he was with Gabinius, he made both Herod and Phasaelus tetrarchs and committed the public affairs to the Judahites to them, of the Judahites to them, and wrote letters to that purpose. He also bound 15 of their adversaries and was going to kill them, but that Herod obtained their pardon. End of paragraph one. And here, Hyrcanus, uh, 
was such a weak person that he sold out his fellow countrymen to Herod and Phasaelus. Paragraph 2. Yet did not these men continue quiet when they were come back, but a thousand of the Judahites came to Tyre to meet him there, whither the report was that they would come. But Antony was corrupted by the money which Herod and his brother had given him, and so he gave order to the governor of the place to punish the Judahite ambassadors who were for making innovations and to settle the government upon Herod. But Herod went out hastily to them, and Hyrcanus was with him, for they stood upon the shore before the city, and he charged them to go their ways, because great mischiefs would befall them if they went on with their accusation. But they did not acquiesce, whereupon the Romans ran upon them with their daggers and slew some, and wounded more of them, and the rest fled away and went home, and lay still in great consternation. And when the people made a clamor against Herod, Antony was so provoked at it that he slew the prisoners. So you can see now, that's the end of paragraph 2, that Herod and Mark Antony had taken total control of Judea, and Herod the Edomite was now the official ruler of Judea over both the Edomites, the Judahites, and whoever else may have been in the territory at the time. Paragraph 3. Now in the second year, Pacorus, the king of Parthia's son, and Barza Farnes, a commander of the Parthians, possessed themselves of Syria. Ptolemy, the son of Menaeus, also was now dead, and Lysanias, his son, took his government and made a league of friendship with Antigonus, the son of Aristobulus, and in order to obtain it, made use of that commander who had great interest in him. Now Antigonus had promised to give the Parthians a thousand talents and five hundred women, upon condition they would take the government away from Hyrcanus and bestow it upon him, and withal killed Herod. Remember, the Parthians are actually Israelites, primarily of the house of Judah. And although he had not give them what he had promised, yet did the Parthians make an expedition into Judea on that account and carried Antigonus with them. Now Antigonus would be opposing Herod, right? Pacorus went along the maritime ports, but the commander Barzapharnes through the Midland. Now the Tyrians excluded Pacorus, but the Sidonians and those of Ptolemais received him. However, Pacorus sent a troop of horsemen into Judea to take a view of the state of the country and to assist Antigonus, and sent also the king's butler of the same name with himself. So when the Judahites that dwelt about Mount Carmel came to Antigonus and were ready to march with him into Judea, Antigonus hoped to get some part of the country by their assistance. The place is called Dreamy, or Drymi, D-R-Y-M-I. And when some others came and met him, the men privately fell upon Jerusalem. And when some more were to come to them, they got together in great numbers and came against the king's palace and besieged it. But as Phasaelus' and Herod's party came to the other's assistance, and a battle happened between them in the marketplace, the young men beat their enemies and pursued them into the temple and sent some armed men into the adjoining houses to keep them in. 
who yet being destitute of such as should support them, were burnt in the houses with them by the people who rose up against them. But Herod was revenged on these seditious adversaries of his a little afterward for this injury they had offered him, when he fought with them and slew a great number of them. End of paragraph 3. Here again we see that the true Judahites were taking up arms against Herod. Paragraph 4. But while there were deadly skirmishes, the enemy waited for the coming of the multitude out of the country to Pentecost, a feast of ours, so called. Again, Josephus is a Judahite, so he speaks of this feast as our feast, the feast of the Judahites. And when that day was come, many ten thousands of the people were gathered together about the temple, some in armor and some without. Now those that came guarded both the temple and the city, excepting what belonged to the palace, which Herod guarded with a few of his soldiers. And Phasaelus had the charge of the wall, while Herod, with a body of his men, sallied out upon the enemy, who lay in the suburbs, and fought courageously, and put many ten thousands to flight, some flying into the city, and some into the temple, and some into the outer fortifications, for some such fortifications there, there were in that place. Phasaelus came also to his assistance, yet was Pacorus, the general of the Parthians, at the desire of Antigonus, admitted into the city with a few of his horsemen under pretense, indeed, as if he would still the sedition, but in reality to assist Antigonus in obtaining the government. And when Phasaelus met him and received him kindly, Pacorus persuaded him to go himself as ambassador to Barzapharnes, which was done fraudulently. Accordingly, Phasaelus, suspecting no harm, complied with this proposal, while Herod did not give his consent to what was done because of the perfidiousness of those barbarians, but desired Phasaelus rather to fight those that were come into the city. Paragraph 5. So both Hyrcanus and Phasaelus went on the embassage. But Pacorus left with Herod two hundred horsemen and ten men who were called freemen, and conducted the others on their journey. And when they were in Galilee, the governors of the cities there met them in their arms. Barzapharnes also received them at the first with cheerfulness and made them presents, though he afterward conspired against them. And Phasaelus, with his horsemen, were conducted to the seaside. But when they heard that Antigonus had promised to give the Parthians a thousand talents and five hundred women to assist him against them, they soon had a suspicion of the barbarians. Moreover, there was one who informed them that the snares were laid for them by night while a guard came about them secretly. And they had been seized upon, but they had not waited for the seizure of Herod by the Parthians that were about Jerusalem, lest upon the slaughter of Hyrcanus and Phasaelus he should have an intimation of it and escape out of their hands. And these were the circumstances they were now in, and they saw who they were that guarded them. Some persons indeed would have persuaded Phasaelus to fly away on horseback and not to stay any longer. And there was one Ophelius, who above all the rest was earnest with him to do so, for he had heard of this treachery from Saramala, the richest of all the Syrians at that time, who also promised to provide him ships to carry him off. For the sea was just by them, but he had no mind to desert Hyrcanus, nor bring his brother into danger. 
but he went to Basra Farnas and told him he did not act justly when he made such a contrivance against them, for that if he wanted money, he would give him more than Antigonus. And besides, that it was a horrible thing to slay those that came to him upon the security of their oaths, and that when they had done them no injury. But the barbarian swore at him that there was no truth in any of his suspicions, but that he was troubled with nothing but false proposals, and then went away to Pocorus. End of paragraph 5. Don't turn your back on anybody. You might get stabbed. Paragraph 6. But as soon as he was gone away, some men came and bound Hyrcanus and Phasaelus, while Phasaelus greatly reproached the Parthians for their perjury. However, that butler who was sent against Herod had it in command to get him without the walls of the city and seize upon him. But messengers had been sent by Phasaelus to inform Herod of the perfidiousness of the Parthians. And when he knew that the enemy had seized upon them, he went to Pacorus and to the most potent of the Parthians as to the lords of the rest, who, although they knew the whole matter, dissembled with him in a deceitful way and said that he ought to go out with them before the walls and meet those who were bringing him his letters, for that they were not taken by his adversaries, but were coming to give him an account of the good success Phasaelus had had. Herod did not give credit to what they said, for he had heard that his brother was seized upon by others also, and the daughter of Hyrcanus, whose daughter he had espoused, was his monitor also, not to credit them which made him still more suspicious of the Parthians. For although other people did not give heed to her, yet did he believe her as a woman of a very great wisdom. Paragraph 7. Now while the Parthians were in consultation what was fit to be done, for they did not think it proper to make an open attempt upon a person of his character, and while they put off the determination to the next day, Herod was under great disturbance of mind, and rather inclining to believe the reports he heard about his brother and the, the Parthians than to give heed to what was said on the other side. He determined that when the evening came on, he would make use of it for his flight and not make any longer delay, as if the dangers from the enemy were not yet certain. He therefore removed with uh, armed men whom he had with him and set his wives upon the beasts, as also his mother and sister and her whom he was about to marry, Mariamne, the daughter of Alexander, the son of Aristobulus, with her mother, the daughter of Hyrcanus, and his youngest brother, and all their servants, and the rest of the multitude that was with him, and without the enemy's privity, pursued his way to Idumea, his home country. Nor could any enemy of his who then saw him in this case be so hard-hearted, but would have commiserated his fortune, while the women drew along their infant children and left their own country for their friends in prison with tears in their eyes and sad lamentations and in expectation of nothing but what was of a melancholy nature. End of paragraph 7. We can see here that Judah, the people of Judah, were now in a state of civil war, with some Judahites supporting the Parthians against Herod and other Judahites supporting Herod along with the Romans. This is the state of affairs leading to the utter demise of the nation of Judah 
and to their utmost control by the Edomites. Paragraph 8. But for Herod himself, he raised his mind above the miserable state he was in, and was of good courage in the midst of his misfortunes. And as he passed along, he bade them every one to be of good cheer, and not to give themselves up to sorrow, because that would hinder them in their flight, which was now the only hope of that safety that they had. Accordingly, they tried to bear with patience the calamity they were under, as he exhorted them to do. Yet was he one almost going to kill himself upon the overthrow of a wagon and the danger his mother was then in of being killed. And this on two accounts, because of his great concern for her and because he was afraid lest by his delay the enemy should overtake him in the pursuit. But as he was drawing his sword and going to kill himself therewith, those that were present restrained him. Rats! They should not have done that. And being so many in number were too hard for him and told him that he ought not to desert them and leave them a prey to their enemies for that it was not the part of a brave man to free himself from the distresses he was in and to overlook his friends that were in the same distress also. So he was compelled to let that horrid attempt alone, (laughs) partly out of shame at what they had said to him, and partly out of regard to the great number of those that would not permit him to do what he intended. So he encouraged his mother, and took all the care of her the time would allow, and proceeded on the way he proposed to go with the utmost taste, and that was to the fortress of Masada. And as he had many skirmishes with such of the Parthians, so attacked him and and pursued him, he was conqueror in them all. Paragraph 9. Nor indeed was he free from the Judahites all as long, along as he was in his flight. For by the time he was gotten sixty furlongs out of the city and was upon the road, they fell upon him and fought hand to hand with him, whom he also put to flight and overcame, not like one that was in distress and in necessity, but like one that was excellently prepared for war and had what he wanted in, in great plenty. And in this very place where he overcame the Judahites, it was that he sometime afterwards built a most excellent palace and a city round about it, and he called it Herodium. And when he was come to Idumea, at the place called Tressa, his brother Joseph met him, and he then held a council to take advice about his affairs and what was fit to be done in his circumstances since he had a great multitude that followed him, besides his mercenary soldiers, and the place Masada, whither he proposed to fly, was too small to contain so great a multitude. So he sent away the greater part of his company, being above nine thousand, and bade them go, some one way and some another, and so saved themselves in Idumea, and gave them what would buy them provisions in their journey. But he took with him those that were the least encumbered and were most intimate with him and came to the fortress and placed there his wives and his followers, being 800 in number, there being in the place a sufficient quantity of corn and water and other necessities, and went directly for Petra in Arabia. But when it was day, the Parthians plundered all Jerusalem and the palace and abstained from nothing but Hyrcanus' money which was 300 talents. 
A great deal of Herod's money escaped, and, a, and principally all that the man had been so provident as to send into Idumea beforehand. Oh, yeah, I guess a bank. Here's your Jewish bank in Idumea. Nor indeed did what was in the city suffice the Parthians, but they went out into the country and plundered it and demolished the city Marissa. Paragraph 10. And thus was Antigonus brought back into Judea by the king of the Parthians and received Hyrcanus and Phasaelus for his prisoners. But he was greatly cast down because the women had escaped, whom he intended to have given the enemy, as having promised that they should have them with the money for their reward. And I must comment here, since the Parthians were the kinsmen of the Judahites, such a marriage would not be forbidden. Continuing. <laughs> okay. But being afraid that Hyrcanus, who was under the guard of the Parthians, might have his kingdom restored to him by the multitude, he cut off his ears and thereby took care that the high priesthood should never come to him any more, because he was ma maimed, while the law required that this dignity should belong to none but such as had all their members entire. This proves that the Parthians were familiar with the Mosaic law. But now one cannot but here admire the fortitude of Phasaelus, who, perceiving that he was to be put to death, did not think death any terrible thing at all, but to die thus by the means of his enemy, that this be thought a most pitiable and dishonorable thing, and therefore, since he had not his hands at liberty, for the bonds he was in prevented from killing himself thereby, he dashed his head against a great stone, and thereby took away his own life, which he thought to be the best thing he could do in such a distress as he was in, and thereby put it out of the power of the Parthians, of the enemy, to bring him to any death he pleased. It is also reported that when he had made a great wound in his head, Antigonus sent physicians to cure it, and by ordering them to infuse poison into the wound, killed him. However, Phasaelus hearing before he was quite dead by a certain woman that his brother Herod had escaped the enemy, underwent his death cheerfully, since now he left behind him one who would revenge his death and who was able to inflict punishment on his enemies. Thus ends chapter 13. Chapter 14 How Herod got away from the king of Arabia, and made haste to go into Egypt, and thence went in haste also to Rome, and how by promising a great deal of money to Antony he obtained of the Senate and of Caesar to be made king of the Judahites, now the Judeans, because the country was in such great disarray that it was no longer in the hands of the Judahites. Paragraph 1. As for Herod, the great miseries he was in did not discourage him, but made him sharp in discovering surprising undertakings. For he went to Malchus, king of Arabia, whom he had formerly been very kind to, in order to receive somewhat by way of a requital. Now he was in more than ordinary want of it, and desired he would let him have some money, either by way of loan or as his free gift, on account of the many benefits he had received from him. For not knowing what was become of his brother, he was in haste to redeem him out of the hand of his enemies, as willing to give three hundred talents 
for the price of his redemption. He also took with him the son of Phasaelus, who was a child of but seven years of age, for this very reason, that he might be a hostage for the repayment of the money. But there came messengers from Malchus to meet him, by whom he was desired to be gone, for that the Parthians had laid a charge upon him not to be, to, not to entertain Herod. This was only a pretense which he made use of, that he might not be obliged to repay him what he owed him. And this he was further induced to do by the principal men among the Arabians, that they might cheat him of what sums they had received from his father Antipater, and which he had committed to their fidelity. He made answer that he did not intend to be troublesome to them by his coming thither, but that he desired only to discourse with them about certain affairs that were to him of the greatest importance. So the Arabians were ready to cheat Herod out of the money that their father gave them. Paragraph 2. Hereupon he resolved to go away, and did go very prudently to the road to Egypt. And then it was that he lodged in a certain temple, for he had left a great many of his followers there. On the next day he came to Rhinocolura, and there it was that he heard what had befallen his brother. Though Malchus soon repented of what he had done and came running after Herod, yet with no manner of success, for he was gotten in a very great way off and made haste into the road to Pelusium. And when the stationary ships that lay there hindered him from sailing to Alexandria, he went to their captains, by whose assistance, and that out of much reverence of, and great regard to him, he was conducted into the city of Alexandria, and was retained there by Cleopatra. Yet was she not able to prevail with him to stay there, because he was making haste to Rome, even though the weather was stormy, and he was informed that the affairs of Italy were very tumultuous and in a great disorder. Paragraph 3. So he set sail from thence to Pamphylia, and falling into a violent storm, he had much ado to escape to Rhodes with the loss of the ship's burden. And there it was that two of his friends, Sapinus and Ptolemaeus, met with him. And as he found that city very much damaged in the war against Cassius, though he were in necessity himself, he neglected not to do it a kindness, but did what he could to recover it to its former state. He also built there a three-decked ship and set sail thence with his friends for Italy and came to the port of Brundusium. And when he was come from thence to Rome, he first related to Antony what had befallen him in Judea, and how Vizalus, his brother, was seized upon by the Parthians and put to death by them, and how Hyrcanus was detained captive by them, and how they had made Antigonus king, who had promised them a sum of money, no less than a thousand talents, with five hundred women, who were to be of the principal families and of the Judahite stock, and that he had carried off the women by night, and that by undergoing a great many hardships he had escaped the hands of his enemies, as also that his own relations were in danger of being besieged and taken, and that he had sailed through a storm and contemned all those terrible dangers in order to come as soon as possible to him who was his hope and only succor at this time. Paragraph 4 
And we have to imagine that uh, Antony uh, admired Herod's courage. Paragraph 4. This account made Antony commiserate the change that had happened in Herod's condition. And reasoning with himself that this was a common case among those that are placed in such great dignities, and that they are liable to the mutations that come from fortune, he was very ready to give him assistance, the assistance that he desired. And this because he called to mind the friendship he had had with Antipater, because Herod offered him money to make him king, as he had formerly given it to him to make him tetrarch, and chiefly because of his hatred to Antigonus, for he took him to be a seditious person and an enemy to the Romans. Caesar was also the forwarder to raise Herod's dignity and to give him his assistance in what he desired on account of the toils of war, which he had himself undergone with Antipater, his father in Egypt, and of the hospitality he had treated him withal, and the kindness he had always shown him, as also to gratify Antony, who was very zealous for Herod. So a senate was convocated, and Messala first, and then Atratinus, introduced Herod into it and enlarged upon the benefits they had received from his father and put them in mind of the goodwill he had borne to the Romans. At the same time, they accused Antigonus and declared him an enemy, not only because of his former opposition to them, but that he had now overlooked the Romans and taken the government from the Parthians. Upon this, the Senate was irritated and Antony informed them further that it was for their advantage in the Parthian war that Herod should be king. This seemed good to all the senators, and so they made a decree accordingly. Again, the Parthians would come into the picture more often as we read on. Paragraph 5. And this was the principal instance of Antony's affection for Herod, that he not only procured him a kingdom which he did not expect, for he did not come with an intention to ask for a kingdom for himself, which he did not suppose the Romans would grant him, who used to bestow it on someone of the royal family, but intended to desire it for his wife's brother, who was grandson by his father to Aristobulus, and to Hyrcanus by his mother. But that he procured it for him so suddenly that he obtained what he did not expect, and departed out of Italy in so few days as seven in all. This young man, the grandson Herod, afterward took care to have slain, as we shall show in its proper place. But when the Senate was dissolved, Antony and Caesar went out of the Senate house with Herod between them, and with the consuls and other magistrates before them, in order to offer sacrifices and to lay up their decrees in the capital. Antony also feasted Herod the first day of his reign, and thus did this man receive the kingdom, having obtained it on the 184th Olympiad, when Caius Domitius Calvinus was consul the second time, and Caius Asinius Pollio the first time. End of paragraph 5, and we see now Herod is firmly ensconced, an Edomite, firmly ensconced, as the ruler over all of Judea, including the Judahites. Paragraph 6. All this while Antigonus besieged those that were in Masada, 
who had plenty of all other necessities, but were only in want of water, insomuch that on this occasion Joseph, Herod's brother, was contriving to run away from it with 200 of his dependents to the Arabians. For he had heard that Malchus repented of the offenses he had been guilty of with regard to Herod. But God, by sending rain in the nighttime, prevented his going away, for their cisterns were thereby filled, and so he was under no necessity of running away on that account. But they were now of good courage, and the more so because the sending of that plenty of water which they had been in want of seemed a mark of divine providence. So they made a sally and fought hand to hand with Antigonus' soldiers, with some openly and some privately, and destroyed a great number of them. At the same time, Ventidius, the general of the Romans, was sent out of Syria to drive the Parthians out of it and marched after them into Judea on pretense indeed to succor Joseph. But in reality, the whole affair was no more than a stratagem in order to get money (laughs) of, of Antigonus. So they pitched their camp very near to Jerusalem and stripped Antigonus of a great deal of money. And then he retired himself with the greater part of the army. But that the wickedness he had been guilty of might not be found out, he left Silo there with a certain part of the soldiers, with whom also Antigonus cultivated an acquaintance, that he might cause him no disturbance, and was still in hopes of that the Parthians would come again and defend him. End of chapter 14. Chapter 15. How Herod sailed out of Italy to Judea and fought with Antigonus and what other things happened in Judea about that time. Paragraph 1. By this time Herod had sailed out of Italy to Ptolemais, and had gotten together no small army, both of strangers and of his own countrymen, and marched through Galilee against Antigonus. Silo also and Ventidius came and assisted him, being persuaded by Delius, who was sent by Antony, to assist in bringing back Herod. Now for Ventidius, he was employed in in composing the disturbances that had been made in the cities by the means of the Parthians. And for Silo, he was indeed in Judea, but corrupted by Antigonus. However, as Herod went along, his army increased every day, and all Galilee, with some small exception, joined him. But as he was marching to those that were in Masada, for he was obliged to endeavor to save those that were in that fortress, now they were besieged because they were his his relations. Joppa was a hindrance to him, for it was necessary for him to take that place first, it being a city at variance with him, that no stronghold might be left in his enemies' hands behind him when he should go to Jerusalem. And when Silo made this a pretense for rising up from Jerusalem, and was thereupon pursued by the Judahites, Herod fell upon him with a small body of men, and both put the Judahites to flight and saved Silo, when he was very poorly able to defend himself. But when Herod had taken Joppa, he made haste to set free those of his family that were in Masada. Now of the people of the country, some joined him because of the friendship they had had with his father, and some because of the splendid appearance he made, and others by way of requital for the benefits they had received from both of them. 
but the greatest number came to him in hopes of getting somewhat from him afterward if he were once firmly settled in the kingdom. <laughs> okay, so which party is going to rule, the Democrats or the Republicans, the Judahites or the Edomites? Paragraph 2. Herod had now a strong army, and as he marched on, Antigonus he laid snares and ambushes in the passes and places most proper for them. But in truth, he thereby did little or no damage to the enemy. So Herod received those of his family out of Masada and the fortress Ressa, and then went on from Jerusalem. The soldiery also that was with Silo accompanied him all along, as did many of the citizens, being afraid of his power. And as soon as he had pitched his camp on the west side of the city, the soldiers that were set to guard that part of shot their arrows and threw their darts at him. And when, sallied, when some sallied out in a crowd and came to fight hand to hand with the first ranks of Herod's army, he gave orders that they should in the first place make proclamation about the wall, that he came for the good of the people and for the preservation of the city, and not to bear any old grudge even at his most open enemies, but ready to forget the offenses which his greatest adversary had done him. But Antigonus, by way of reply to what Herod had caused to be proclaimed, and this before the Romans and before Silo also, said that they would not do justly if they gave the kingdom to Herod, who was no more than a private man and an Idumean, i.e. a half-Jew, but of course he was a full-blooded Edomite. So Antigonus apparently didn't know this. Whereas they ought to bestow it on one of his own, one of the royal family, as their custom was. Yeah, absolutely. For that in case they at present bear an ill will to him and had resolved to deprive him of the kingdom as having received it from the Parthians, Yet were there many others of his family that might by their law take it, and these such as had no way offended the Romans. And being of the sacerdotal family, it would be an unworthy thing to put them by. Now while they said thus one to another, and fell into reproaching one another on both sides, Antigonus permitted his own men that were upon the wall to defend themselves, who using their bows and showing great alacrity against their enemies, easily drove them away from the towers. Okay, so we see that the pure-blooded Judahites were still trying to maintain the kingdom. Paragraph 3. Let me actually read a footnote here. This affirmation of Antigonus, spoken in the days of Herod and in a manner to his face, seems to me of much greater authority than that pretense of his favorite and flatterer Nicolaus of Damascus, that he derived his pedigree from Judah as far backward as the Babylonian captivity. Accordingly, Josephus always esteems him an Idumean. We're talking about Herod here. Though he says his father Antipater was of the same people with the Judahites and a Judahite by birth, as indeed all such proselytes of justice as the Idumeans, were in time esteemed the very same people with the Judahites. And of course, this is incorrect by the translator, this comment. The Idumeans were in no way ever friends of the Israelites and are constant enemies of ours. 
So the translator doesn't get it. The, the fact is that Herod was a 100% Idumea, and so was his father. Paragraph 3. But now it was that Silo discovered that he had taken bribes, for he sent a great number of his soldiers to complain aloud of the want of provisions they were in and to require money to buy them food, and that it was fit to let them go into places proper for winter quarters, since the places near the city were a desert, by reason that Antigonus' soldiers had carried all away. So he sent his army upon removing and endeavored to march away, but Herod pressed Silo not to depart, and exhorted Silo's captains and soldiers not to desert him, when Caesar and Antony and the Senate had sent him thither, for that he would provide them plenty of all the things they wanted, and easily procure them a great abundance of what they required. After which entreaty he immediately went into the country, and left not the least pretense to Silo for his departure, for he brought an unexpected quantity of provisions and sent to those friends of his who inhabited about Samaria to bring down corn and wine and oil and cattle and all other provisions to Jericho, that there might be no want of a supply for the soldiers for the time to come. Antigonus was sensible of this and sent presently over the country such as might restrain and lie in ambush for those who went out for provisions. So these men obeyed the orders of Antigonus and got together a great number of armed men about Jericho and sat upon the mountains and watched those that brought the provisions. However, Herod was not idle in the meantime, for he took ten bands of soldiers, of whom five were of the Romans and five of the Judahites, with some mercenaries among them, and with some few horsemen, and came to Jericho. And as they found the city deserted, but that five hundred of them had settled themselves on the tops of the hills with their wives and children, those who took he took and sent away. But the Romans fell upon the city and plundered it, and found the houses full of all sorts of good things. So the king left the garrison at Jericho, and came back again, and sent the Roman army to take their winter quarters in the countries that were come over to him, Judea and Galilee and Samaria. And so much did Antigonus gain of Silo for the bribes he gave him that part of his army should be quartered at Lydda in order to please Antony. So the Romans laid their weapons aside and lived in plenty of all things. End of paragraph 3. Paragraph 4. But Herod was not pleased with lying still but sent out his brother Joseph against Idumea with 2,000 armed footmen and 400 horsemen, while he himself came to Samaria and left his mother and his other relations there, for they were already gone out of Masada and went into Galilee and took certain places which were held by the garrisons of Antigonus. And he passed on to Sephorus as God sent a snow, while Antigonus's garrisons withdrew themselves and had great plenty of provisions. He also went thence and resolved to destroy those robbers that dwelt in the caves and did much mischief in the country. So he sent a troop of horsemen and three companies of armed footmen against them. They were very near to a village called Arbella, and on the fortieth day after he came himself with his whole army. And as the enemy sallied out boldly upon him, the left wing of his army gave way, but he, appearing with a body of men, put those to flight who were already conquerors and recalled his men that ran away. 
He also pressed upon his enemies and pursued them as far as the river Jordan, though they ran away by different roads. So he brought over to him all Galilee, excepting those that dwelt in the caves, and distributed money to every one of his soldiers, giving them a hundred and fifty drachmas apiece, and much more to their captains, and sent them into winter quarters. At which time Silo came to him, and his commanders with him, because Antigonus would not give them provisions any longer, for he supplied them no more than one month, Nay, he had sent to all the country round about and ordered them to carry off the provisions that were there and retire to the mountains, that the Romans might have no provisions to live upon and so might perish by famine. But Herod committed the care of that matter to Ferraris, his youngest brother, and ordered him to repair Alexandrium also. Accordingly, he quickly made the soldiers abound with great plenty of provisions and rebuilt Alexandrium, which had been before Desolate. Paragraph 5. About this time it was that Antony continued some time at Athens, and that Ventidius, who was now in Syria, sent for Silo and commanded him to assist Herod, in the first place to finish the present war, and then to send for their confederates for the war they were themselves engaged in. But as for Herod, he went in haste against the robbers that were in the caves and sent Silo away to Ventidius while he marched against them. These caves were in the mountains that were exceedingly abrupt, and in their middle were no other than precipices, with certain entrances into the caves, and those caves were encompassed with sharp rocks, and in these he did the robbers lie concealed, with all their families about them. But the king caused certain chests to be made, in order to destroy them, and to be hung down, bound about with iron chains by an engine from the top of the mountain, it being not possible to get up to them by reason of the sharp ascent of the mountains, nor to creep down to them from above. Now these chests were filled with armed men, who had long hooks in their hands by which they might pull out such as resisted them, and then tumble them down and kill them by so doing. But the letting of the chest down proved to be a matter of great danger because of the vast depth they were to be let down, although they'd had their uh, provisions in the chest themselves. But when the chests were let down and not one of those in the mouths of the caves durst come near them, but lay still out of fear, some of the armed men girt on their armor and by both their hands took hold of the chain by which the ch chests were let down and went into the mouths of the caves because they fretted that such delay was made by the robbers not daring to come out of the caves. And when they were at any of those mouths, they first killed many of those that were in the mouths with their darts and afterwards pulled those to them that resisted them with their hooks and tumbled them down the precipices and afterwards went into the caves and killed many more and then went into the caves and the chests went into the chests again and lay still there but up upon this terror seized the rest when they heard the lamentations that were made and they desired of escaping however when the night came on that put an end to the whole work and as the king proclaimed pardon by a herald to such as delivered themselves up to him many accepted the offer the same method of assault was made use of the next day and they went further and got out in baskets to fight them 
and fought them at their doors and set fire among them and set their caves on fire. For there was a great deal of combustible matter within them. Now there was one old man who was caught within one of these caves with seven children and a wife. These prayed to him to give them leave to go out and yield themselves up to the enemy. But he stood at the cave's mouth and always slew that child of his who went out till he had destroyed them every one. And after that he slew his wife and cast their dead bodies down the precipice and himself after them and so underwent the death rather than slavery. But before he did this, he greatly reproached Herod with the meanness of his family, although he was then king. Herod also saw what he was doing and stretched out his hand and offered him all manner of security for his life, by which means all these caves were at length subdued entirely. Paragraph 6. And when the king had set Ptolemy over these parts of the country as his general, he went to Samaria with 600 horsemen and 3,000 armed footmen as intending to fight Antigonus. But still this command of the army did not succeed well with Ptolemy. But those that had been troublesome to Galilee before attacked him, and when they had done this they fled along among the lakes and places almost inaccessible, laying waste and plundering whatever they could come at in those places. But Herod soon returned and punished them for what they had done. For some of those rebels he slew, and others of them who had fled into the strongholds he besieged, and both slew them and demolished their strongholds. And when he had thus put an end to their rebellion, he laid a fine upon the cities of a hundred talents. Paragraph 7. In the meantime... Pacorus was fallen in battle, and the Parthians were defeated, when Ventidius sent Machaerus to the assistance of Herod, with two legions and a thousand horsemen, while Antony encouraged him to make haste. But Machaerus, at the instigation of Antigonus, without the approbation of Herod, as being corrupted by money, went about to take a view of the affairs. But Antigonus, suspecting this intention of his coming, did not admit him into the city, but kept him at a distance with throwing stones at him, and plainly showed what he himself meant. But when Machaerus was sensible that Herod had given him good advice, and that he had made a mistake himself in not hearkening to that advice, he retired to the city Emmaus. And what the Judahites he met with he slew, and whether they were enemies or friends out of the rage he was in at what hardships he had undergone. The king was provoked at this conduct of his and went to Samaria and resolved to go to Antony about these affairs and inform him that he stood in no need of such helpers who did him more mischief than he did his, did his enemies and that he was able himself to beat Antigonus. But Machaerus followed him and desired that he would not go to Antony, or if he was resolved to go, that he would join his brother Joseph with them and let them fight against Antigonus. So he was reconciled to Machaerus upon his earnest entreaties. Accordingly, he left Joseph there with his army, but charged him to run no hazards, nor to quarrel with Machaerus. End of paragraph 7. So Machaerus was fearful that Antony would be upset with his behavior and made his peace with Herod. 
paragraph 8. But for his own part, he made haste to Antony, who was then at the siege of Samosata, a place upon Euphrates, with his troops, both horsemen and footmen, to be auxiliaries to him. And when he came to Antioch, and met there a great number of men gotten together that were very desirous to go to Antony, but durst not venture to go out of fear because of the barbarians fell upon the road, and slew many, so he encouraged them and became their conductor upon the road. Now when they were within two days' march of Samosata, Samosata, rather, the barbarians had laid an ambush there to disturb those that came to Antony, and where the woods made the passes narrow, as they led to the plains, there they laid not a few of their horsemen, who were to lie still until the passengers were gone by into the wide place. Now as soon as the first ranks were gone by, for Herod brought on the rear, those that lay in ambush, who were about five hundred, fell upon them on the sudden, and when they had put them foremost into flight, the king came riding hard with the forces that were about him, and immediately drove back the enemy, by which means he made the minds of his own men courageous, and emboldened them to go on, insomuch that those who ran away before now returned back, and the barbarians were slain on all sides. The king also went on killing them, and recovered all the baggage, among which were a great number of beasts of burden, and of slaves, and proceeded on his march. And whereas there were a great number of those in the woods that attacked them, and were near the passage that led into the plain, he made a sally upon these also with a strong body of men, and put them to flight, and slew many of them, and thereby rendered the way safe for those that came after. And these called Herod their savior and protector. End of paragraph 8. So we see Herod getting rid of as many Judahites as possible to secure his throne. Paragraph 9. And when he was near to Samosata, Antony sent out his army in all their proper habiliments to meet him in order to pay Herod this respect and because of the assistance he had given him. For he had heard what attacks the barbarians had made upon him in Judea. He was also very glad to see him there as having been made acquainted with the great actions he had performed upon the road. So he entertained him very kindly and could not but admire his courage. Antony also embraced him as soon as he saw him and saluted him after a most affectionate manner and gave him the upper hand as having himself lately made him a king. And in a little time Antiochus delivered up the fortress and on that account this war was at an end. Then Antony committed the rest to Sasius and gave him orders to assist Herod and went himself to Egypt. Accordingly, Sasius sent two legions before into Judea to the assistance of Herod, and he followed himself with the body of the army. Paragraph 10. Now Joseph was already slain in Judea in the manner following. He forgot what charge his brother Herod had given him when he went to Antony, and when he had pitched his camp among the mountains, for Machaerus had lent him five regiments, with these went, he went hastily to Jericho in order to reap the corn thereto belonging. And as the Roman regiments were but newly raised and were unskillful in war, for they were in great part collected out of Syria, he was attacked by the enemy and caught in those places of difficulty and was himself slain as he was fighting bravely 
and with the whole army was lost, for there were six regiments slain. So when Antigonus got possession of the dead bodies, he cut off Joseph's head, although Ferraris' brother would have redeemed it at the price of fifty talents. After which defeat, the Galileans revolted from their commanders and took those of Herod's party and drowned them in the lake. And a great part of Judea was become seditious, but Machaerus fortified the place Gitta in Samaria. Paragraph 11. At this time, messengers came to Herod and informed him of what had been done. And when he was to come to Daphne by Antioch, they told him of ill fortune that had befallen his younger brother, which he yet expected from certain visions that appeared to him in his dreams, which clearly foreshowed his brother's death. So he hastened his march, and when he came to Mount Libanus, he received about 800 men of that place, having already with him one Roman legion, and with these he came to Ptolemais. He also marched thence by night with his army and proceeded along Galilee. Here it was that the enemy met him and fought him and were beaten and shut up in the same place of strength whence they had sallied out the day before. So he attacked the place in the morning, but by reason of a great storm that was then very violent, he was able to do nothing but drew off his army into the neighboring villages. Yet as soon as the other legion that Antony sent him was come to his assistance, those that were in garrison in the place were afraid and deserted it in the night time. Then did the king march hastily to Jericho, intending to avenge himself on the enemy for the slaughter of his brother. And when he had pitched his tents, he made a feast for the principal commanders. And after this collation was over, and he had dismissed his guests, he retired to his own chamber. And here may one see what kindness God had for the king, for the upper part of the house fell down when nobody was in it, and so killed none, insomuch that all the people believed that Herod was beloved of God, since he had escaped such a great and surprising danger. Paragraph 12. But the next day, 6,000 of the enemy came down from the tops of the mountains to fight the Romans, which greatly terrified them. And the soldiers that were in light armor came near and pelted the king's guards that were come out of the dar with darts and stones, and one of them hit him on the side with a dart. Antigonus also sent a commander against Samaria, whose name was Pappus, with some forces being desirous to show the enemy how potent he was, and that he had men to spare in his war with them. He sat down to oppose Machaerus. But Herod, when he had taken five cities, took such as were left in them, being about two thousand, and slew them, and burnt the cities themselves, and then returned to go against Pappus, who was encamped at a village called Isanus. And there ran in, into him many out of Jericho and Judea, near to which places he was. And the enemy fell upon his men, so stout were they at this time, and joined battle with them. But he beat them in the fight, and in, and in order to be revenged on them for the slaughter of his brother, he pursued them sharply and killed them as they ran away. And as the houses were full of armed men, and many of them ran as far as the tops of the houses, he got them under his power and pulled down the roofs of the houses and saw the lower rooms a heap. So he threw stones down upon them as they piled up one on another, and they thereby killed them. Nor was there 
a more was there a more frightful spectacle in all the war than this, where beyond the walls an immense multitude of dead men lay heaped one upon the other. This action it was which chiefly brake the spirits of the enemy, who expected now what would come, for there appeared a mighty number of people that came from places far distant that were now about the village, but then ran away. And had it not been for the depth of winter which then restrained them, the king's army had presently gone to Jerusalem as being very courageous at this good success. And the whole work had been done immediately, for Antigonus was already looking about how he might fly away and leave the city. Paragraph 13. At this time the king gave orders that the soldiers should go to supper, for it was late at night while he went into a chamber to use the bath, for he was very weary. And here it was that he was in the greatest danger, which yet by God's providence he escaped. For as he was naked and had but one servant that followed him to be with him while he was bathing in an inner room, certain of the enemy who were in their armor and fled thither out of fear were then in the place. And as he was bathing, the first time came out with his naked sword drawn, and went at the doors after them, a second and a third, armed in like manner, and were under such a consternation that they did no hurt to the king, and thought themselves to have come off very well in suffering no harm themselves in their getting out of the house. However, on the next day he cut off the head of Pappus, for he was already slain, and sent it to Ferraris as a punishment of what their brother had suffered by his means, for he was the man that slew him with his own hand. Paragraph 14. When the rigor of winter was over, Herod removed his army and came near to Jerusalem and pitched his camp hard by the city. Now this was the third year since he had been made king at Rome. And as he removed his camp and came near that part of the wall where it could be most easily assaulted, he pitched that camp before the temple, intending to make his attacks in the same manner as did Pompey. So he encompassed the place with three bulwarks and erected towers and employed a great many hands about the work and cut down the trees that were round about the city. And when he had appointed proper persons to oversee the works, even while the army lay before the city, he himself went to Samaria to complete his marriage and to take to wife the daughter of Alexander, the son of Aristobulus, for he had betrothed her already as I have before related. Ender, end of chapter 15. Now chapter 16. How Herod, when he had married Mariamne, took Jerusalem with the assistance of Socius by force, and how the government of the Asmoneans was put an end to, the Asmoneans being the royal house of Judah. Paragraph 1. After the wedding was over, came Socius through Phoenicia, having sent out his army before him over the Midland parts. He also, who was their commander, came himself, with a great number of horsemen and footmen. The king also came himself from Samaria, and brought with him no small army, besides that which was there before, for they were about thirty thousand. And they all met together at the walls of Jerusalem, and encamped at the north wall of the city, being now an army of eleven legions, armed men on foot and six thousand horsemen, with their auxiliaries out of Syria. The generals were two, Socius, sent by Antony to assist Herod, 
and Herod on his own account in order to take the government from Antigonus, who was declared an enemy to Rome, and that he himself be king, according to the decree of the Senate. Paragraph 2. Now the Judahites that were enclosed within the walls of the city fought against Herod with great alacrity and zeal, for the whole nation was gathered together. They also gave out many prophecies about the temple and many things agreeable to the people as if God would deliver them out of the danger they were in. They had also carried off what was out of the city and they might not leave anything to afford sustenance either for man or for beasts. And by private robberies, they made the want of necessities greater. When Herod understood this, he opposed ambushes in the fittest places against their private robberies. And he sent legions of armed men to bring in provisions, and that from remote places, so that in a little time they had great plenty of provisions. Now the three bulwarks were easily erected, because so many hands were continually at work upon it. For it was summertime, and there was nothing to hinder them in raising their works, neither from the air nor from the workmen. So they brought their engines to bear, and shook the walls of the city, and tried all manner of ways to get in. Yet did not these within discover any fear. But they also contrived not a few engines to oppose their engines withal. They also sallied out and burnt not only those engines that were not yet perfected, but those that were. And when they came hand to hand, their attempts were not less bold than those of the Romans, though they were behind them in skill. They also erected new works when the former were ruined, and making mines underground, they met each other and fought there. And making use of brutish courage rather than of prudent valor, they persisted in this war to the very last. And this they did while a mighty army lay round about them, and while they were distressed by famine and the want of necessaries. For this happened to be a sabbatic year. Now again, we see that the Judahites fought valiantly to retain the kingdom. The first that scaled the walls were twenty chosen men. Next were Sosius's centurions, for the first wall was taken in forty days, and the second in fifteen more, when some of the cloisters that were about the temple were burnt, which Herod gave out to have been burnt by Antigonus, in order to expose him to the hatred of the Judahites. And when the outer court of the temple and the lower city were taken, the Judahites fled into the inner part, inner court, of the temple and into the upper city. But now, fearing lest the Romans should hinder them from offering their daily sacrifices to God, they sent an embassage and desired that they would only permit them to bring in beasts for sacrifices, which Herod granted, hoping they were going to yield. But when he saw that they did nothing of what he supposed but bitterly opposed him in order to preserve the kingdom to Antigonus, he made an assault upon the city and took it by storm. And now all parts were full of those that were slain by the rage of the Romans at the long duration of the siege and by the zeal of the Judahites that were on Herod's side, who were not willing to leave one of their adversaries alive. So they were murdered continually in the narrow streets and in the houses by crowds. And as they were flying into the temple for shelter, and there was no pity taken for either infants or the aged, nor did they spare so much as the weaker sex. Nay, although the king sent about and besought them to spare the people, yet nobody restrained their hands from slaughter, 
But as if they were a company of madmen, they fell upon persons of all ages without distinction, and then Antigonus, without regard to either his past or present circumstances, came down from the citadel and fell down at the feet of Socius, who took no pity on him in the change of his fortune, but insulted him beyond measure and called him Antigone, i.e. a woman and not a man. Yet did he not treat him as if he were a woman, but letting him go at liberty, but put him into bonds and kept him in close custody. End of paragraph 2. So we see the civil war among the Judahites, precipitated by Herod and the Romans, was vicious on both sides, kind of similar to our American civil war. Paragraph 3. And now Herod, having overcome his enemies, his care was to govern those foreigners who had been his assistants. For the crowd of strangers rushed to see the temple and the sacred things in the temple. But the king, thinking a victory to be a more severe affliction than a defeat, if any of those things which it was not lawful to see should be seen by them, used entreaties and threatenings and even sometimes force itself to restrain them. So who, who would these strangers be? Obviously Edomites. Because only Edomites would have any desire to see what was in the temple because they had been lusting after the possession of the temple since the days of Esau and Jacob. He also prohibited the ravage that was made in the city and many times asked Socius whether the Romans would empty the city both of money and men and leave him king of a, de of a desert and told him that he esteemed dominion over the whole habitable earth as by no means an equivalent satisfaction for such a murder of his citizens. And when he said that this plunder was justly to be permitted, the soldiers for the siege they had undergone, he replied that he would give everyone his reward out of his own money. And by this means he redeemed what remained of the city from destruction. And he performed what he had promised him, for he gave a noble present to every soldier and a proportionable present to their commander, but most a most royal present to Socius himself, till they all went away full of money. End of paragraph 3. So we see that even Herod himself, realizing that the slaughter was becoming so great that he had to put a stop to it, lest he have no kingdom to rule over. Paragraph 4. This destruction befell the city of Jerusalem when Marcus Agrippa and Caninius Gallus were consuls at Rome on the 180th, 85th Olympiad in, on the third month on the solemn uh, solemnity of the fast as if a periodical revolution of calamities had returned since that which befell the Judahites under Pompey. For the Judahites were taken by him in the same day, and this was after 27 years' time. So when Socius had dedicated a crown of gold to God, he marched away from Jerusalem and carried Antigonus with him in bonds to Antony. But Herod was afraid lest Antigonus should be kept in prison only by Antony, and that when he was carried to Rome by him, he might get his cause to be heard by the Senate and might demonstrate, as he was himself of the royal blood, and Herod but a private man, and an Edomite, of course, that therefore it belonged to his sons, however, to have the kingdom, 
on account of the family they were of, in case he had himself offended the Romans by what he had done. Out of Herod's fear of this, it was that he, by giving Antony a great deal of money, endeavored to persuade him to have Antigonus slain, which, if it were once done, he should be free from that fear. And thus did the government of the Asmoneans cease, 126 years after it was first set up, this family was a splendid and illustrious one, both on account of the nobility of their stock and of the dignity of the high priesthood, as also for the glorious actions of their ancestors had performed for our nation. But these men lost the government by their dissensions one with another, and it came to Herod, the son of Antipater, who was of no more than a vulgar family, namely an Edomite, and of no eminent extraction, but one that was subject to other kings. And this is what history tells us was the end of the Asmonean family. End of book 14. Continuing now with book 15, containing the interval of 18 years, from the death of Antigonus to the finishing of the temple by Herod. Chapter 1. Concerning Pollio and Simaeus, Herod slays the principal of Antigonus's friends and spoils the city of its wealth. Antony beheads Antigonus. Paragraph 1. How Socius and Herod took Jerusalem by force, and besides that, how they took Antigonus captive, has been related by us in the foregoing book. We will now proceed in the narration. And since Herod had now the government of all Judea put in his hands, he promoted such of the private men of the city as had been of his party, but never left off avenging and punishing every day those had been, who had chosen to be of the party of his enemies. But Pollio, the Pharisee, and Simaeus, a disciple of his, were honored by him above all the rest. For when Jerusalem was besieged, they advised the citizens to receive Herod for which advice they were well requited. But this Pollio, at the time when Herod was once upon tr his trial of life and death, foretold in a way of reproach to Hyrcanus and to other judges how this Herod, whom they suffered now to escape, would afterward inflict punishment on them all, which had its completion in time, while God fulfilled the words he had spoken. End of paragraph 1. So we see now, that the Herodians now are in full power, and Herod was killing his enemies among the Judahites and engaging friends of among the Judahites with bribes. Paragraph 2. At this time Herod, now he had got Jerusalem under his power, carried off all the royal ornaments and spoiled the wealthy men of what they had gotten. And when by these means he heaped together a great quantity of silver and gold, he gave it all to Antony and his friends that were about him. He also slew 45 of the principal men of Antigonus's party and set guards at the gates of the city that nothing might be carried out together with their dead bodies. Here must interject, this would be like a civil war in America today with the Democrats killing off the Republicans. They also searched the dead and whatever was found, either of silver or gold or other treasure, it was carried to the king. 
nor was there any end of the miseries he brought upon them, and this distress was in part occasioned by the covetousness of the prince regent, who was still in want of more, and in part by the sabbatic year, which was still going on, and forced the country to lie still uncultivated, since we are forbidden to sow the land in that year. Now when Antony had received Antigonus as his captive, he determined to keep him against his triumph. But when, the, when he heard the nation who grew seditious, and that out of their hatred to Herod they continued to bear good will to Antigonus, he resolved to, be, to behead him at Antioch, for otherwise the Judahites could in no way be brought to quiet. And Strabo attests to what I have said when he thus speaks, quote, Antony ordered Antigonus, the Judahite, to be brought to Antioch and there to be beheaded. And this Antony seems to me to have been the very first man who beheaded a king, as supposing he could no other way bend the minds of the Judahites so as to receive Herod, whom he had made king in his stead. For by no torments could they be forced to call him king, so great a fondness they had for their former king. So he thought this the dishonorable death would diminish the value they had for Antigonus's memory, and at the same time would diminish the hatred they bear to Herod. Unquote. Thus for Strabo. End of chapter 1. Chapter 2. How Hyrcanus was set at liberty by the Parthians, and returned to Herod, and what Alexandra did when she heard that Ananelus was made high priest. Paragraph 1. Now after Herod was in possession of the kingdom, Hyrcanus the high priest, who was then a captive among the Parthians, came to him again, and was set free from his captivity in the manner following. Barzaphanus and Pascorus, the generals of the Parthians, took Hyrcanus, who was first made high priest and afterwards king, and Herod's brother, Phasaelus, captives, and were carrying them away into Parthia. Phasaelus indeed could not bear the reproach of being in bonds, and thinking that death with glory was better than any life whatsoever, he became his own executioner, as I have formerly related. Paragraph 2. But when Hyrcanus was brought into Parthia, the king of the Phraates treated him after a very gentle manner, as having already learned of what an illustrious family he was, on which account he set him free from his bonds and gave him a habitation at Babylon, where there were Judahites in great numbers. These Judahites honored Hyrcanus as their high priest and king, as did all the Judahite nation that dwelt as far as Euphrates, which respect was very much to his satisfaction. Again, I have to stress that the Parthians were the kinsmen of the Judahites. But when he was informed that Herod had received the kingdom, new hopes came upon him as having been himself still of a kind disposition towards him. And expecting that Herod would bear in mind what favor he had received from him, and when he was upon his trial, and when he was in danger that a capital sentence would be pronounced against him, he delivered him, that is Herod, from that danger and from all punishment. Accordingly, he talked of that matter with the Judahites that came often to him with great affection, but they endeavored to retain him among them and desired that he would stay with them, putting him in mind of the kind offices and honors they did him 
and that those honors they paid him were not at all inferior to what they could pay to either their high priests or their kings. And what was a greater motive to determine him, they said, was this, that he could not have those dignities in Judea, because that the main of his body which had been inflicted on him by Antigonus, and that kings do not use to requite men for these kindnesses which they receive when they were private persons, the height of their fortune making usually no small changes in them. End of paragraph 2. Now, although they suggested these arguments to him for his own advantage, yet did Hyrcanus still desire to depart. Herod also wrote to him and persuaded him to desire of Phraates and the Judahites that were there, that they should not grudge him the royal authority, which he should have jointly with himself, for that now he was the proper time for himself to make amends for the favors he had received from him, as having been brought up by him and saved by him also, as well as for Hyrcanus to receive it. And as he wrote thus to Hyrcanus, so did he send also Saramalus, his ambassador to Phraites, and many presents with him, and desired him in the most obliging way that he would be no hindrance to his gratitude towards his benefactor. But this zeal of Herod's did not flow from that principle, but because he had been made governor of that country without having any just claim to it, he was afraid, and that upon reasons good enough of a change in his condition, and so made what haste he could to get Hyrcanus into his power, or indeed to put him quite out of the way, which last thing he effected afterwards. So Herod's kind words were nothing but a lure to kill Hyrcanus. Paragraph 4. Accordingly, when Hyrcanus came, full of assurance by the permission of the king of Parthia, and at the expense of the Judahites who supplied him with money, Herod received him with all possible respect, and gave him the upper place at public meetings, and set him above all the rest at feasts, and thereby deceived him. He called him his father, and endeavored by all the ways possible, that he might have no suspicion of any treacherous design against him. He also did other things in order to secure his government, which yet occasioned a sedition in his own family. For being cautious how he made any illustrious person the high priest of God, he sent for an obscure priest out of Babylon, whose name was Anenelus, and bestowed the high priesthood upon him. End of paragraph 4. Now this is a total violation of the law of Israel, of the Mosaic law, to set a non-Israelite up as high priest. But we know, of course, that Herod was an Edomite, not an Israelite, and he wanted to disempower the Judahites by any means possible, and that's what he did. Paragraph 5. However, Alexandra, the daughter of Hyrcanus, and wife of Alexander, the son of Aristobulus the king, who had also brought Alexander two children, could not bear this indignity. Now this son was one of the greatest comeliness, and was called Aristobulus, and the daughter Mariamne was married to Herod, and eminent for her beauty also. This Alexander was much disturbed, and took this indignity offered to her son exceedingly ill, that while he was alive anyone else should be sent to have the dignity of the high priesthood conferred upon him. 
Accordingly, she wrote to Cleopatra, a musician assisting her in taking care to have her letters carried, to desire her intercession with Antony in order to gain the high priesthood for her son. Paragraph 6. But as Antony was slow in granting this request, his friend Delius came into Judea upon some affairs. And when he saw Aristobulus, he stood in admiration of the tallness and handsomeness of the child, and no less at Mariamne, the king's wife, and was open in his commendations of Alexandra as the mother of most beautiful children. And when she came to discourse with him, with them both, and to send them to Antony, for that when he saw them, he would deny nothing that she would ask. Accordingly, Alexander was elevated with these words of his and sent the pictures to Antony. Delius also talked extravagantly and said that these children seemed not derived from men, but from some god or other. They were, of course, Aryan Judahites. His design in doing so was to entice Antony into lewd pleasures with them, who was ashamed to send for the damsel as being the wife of Herod, and avoided it because of the reproaches he should have come from Cleopatra on that account. But he sent in the most decent manner he could for the young man, but added this with all, unless he thought it hard upon him to do so. When this letter was brought to Herod, he did not think it safe for him to send one so handsome as was Aristobulus in the prime of his life, for he was 16 years of age and of so noble a family, and particularly not to Antony, the principal man among the Romans, and one that would abuse him in his amours, and besides, one that openly indulged himself in such pleasures as his power allowed him without control. Are we to assume that Mark Antony was a homosexual? He therefore wrote back to him that if this boy should only go out of the country, all would be in a state of war and uproar, because the Judahites were in hopes of a change in the government and to have another king over them. Yes, besides Herod. Paragraph 7. When Herod had thus excused himself to Antony, he resolved that he would not entirely permit the child of Alexander to be treated dishonorably. But his wife, Mariamne, lay vehemently at him to restore the high priesthood to her brother, and he judged it was for his advantage to do so, because if once he had that dignity, he could not go out of the country. So he called all his friends together and told them that Alexander privately conspired against his royal authority and endeavored by the means of Cleopatra so to bring it about that he might be deprived of the government, and that by Antony's means his youth might have the management of public affairs in his stead, and that this procedure of hers was unjust, since she would at the same time deprive her daughter of the dignity she now had, and would bring disturbances upon the kingdom, for which he had taken a great deal of pains, and gotten with extraordinary hazards." that yet while he well remembered her wicked practices, he would not leave off doing what was right himself, but would even now give the youth the high priesthood, and that he formerly set up Anenolus, because Aristobulus was then so very young a child. Now when he had said this, not at random, but as he thought with the best discretion he had, in order to deceive the women, <laughs> and those friends whom he had taken to consult with all, Alexandra, out of the great joy she had at this unexpected promise, and out of fear from the suspicions she lay under, fell a-weeping, 
and made the following apology for herself and said that as to the high priesthood, she was very much concerned for the disgrace her son was under, and so did her utmost endeavors to procure it for him, but that as to the kingdom she had made no attempts, and that if were offered her for her son, she would not accept it, and that now she would be satisfied with her son's dignity." while he himself held the civil government, and she had thereby the security to all the remainder of her family, that she was now overcome by his benefits, and thankfully accepted of this honor shown to him, to her, her son, and that she would hereafter be entirely obedient, and she desired him to excuse her if the nobility of her family, and that the freedom of acting which she sought that allowed her, had made her act too precipitously and imprudently in this manner. So when they had spoken thus to one another, they came to an agreement, and all suspicions, so far as appeared, were vanished away. End of chapter 2. Now chapter 3, with the heading, How Herod, upon his making Aristobulus high priest, took care that he should be murdered in a little time and what apology he made to Antony about Aristobulus, as also concerning Joseph and Mariamne. Paragraph 1. So King Herod immediately took the high priesthood away from Anenelus, who, as we said before, was not of this country, but one of those Judahites that had been carried captive beyond Euphrates. For there were not a few of ten thousands of these people that had been carried captives and dwelt about Babylonia, whence Anenelus came. He was one of the stock of the high priests, according to Josephus here. But there's a footnote here. When Josephus says here that this Anenelus was of the stock of the high priests, it contradicts what he had been just telling us, that he was a priest of an obscure family or character, chapter 2, section 4. So we'll have to leave this as a disputed matter. Anyway, and let me restart the sentence over. He was one of the stock of the high priests and had been of old a particular friend of Herod. <laughs> That's the important thing, a particular friend of Herod. And when he was first made king, he conferred that dignity upon him and now put him out of it again in order to quiet the troubles in his family. Though what he did was plainly unlawful, for that no other time of old was any one that had not once been in that dignity deprived of it. It was Antiochus Epiphanes who first broke that law and deprived Jesus, who was high priest at the time, and made his brother Onias high priest in his stead. Aristobulus was the second that did so and took that dignity from his brother Hyrcanus. And this Herod was the third who took the high priest office away from Anenelus and gave it to this young man Aristobulus in his stead. Paragraph 2. Now Herod seemed to have healed the divisions in his family, and yet he was not without suspicion, as is frequently the case of people seeming to be reconciled to one another, but thought that as Alexander had already made attempts attending to innovations, so did he fear that she would go on therein if she found a fit opportunity for so doing. So he gave a command that she should dwell in the palace and meddle with no public affairs. Her guards also were so careful that nothing she did in private life every day was concealed. All these hardships put her out of patience by little and little, and she began to hate Herod. 
For as she had the pride of a woman to the utmost degree, she had great indignation at this suspicious guard that was about her, as desirous rather to undergo anything that could befall her than to be deprived of her liberty of speech, and under the notion of an honorary guard to live in a state of slavery and terror. She therefore sent to Cleopatra and made a long complaint of the circumstances she was in, and entreated her to do her the utmost for her assistance. Cleopatra hereupon advised her to take her son with her, and come away immediately to her in, into Egypt. This advice pleased her, and she had this contrivance for getting away. She got two coffins made, as if they were to carry away two dead bodies, and put herself into one, and her son into the other, and gave orders to such of her servants as knew of her intentions to carry them away in the night time. Now their road was to be thence to the seaside, and there was a ship ready to carry them into Egypt. Now Aesop, one of her servants, happened to fall upon Sabion, one of her friends, and spake of this matter to him, as thinking he had known of it before. When Sabion knew this, who had formerly been an enemy of Herod, it had been esteemed one of those that laid snares for and gave poison to his father Antipater, he expected that this discovery would change Herod's hatred into kindness. Loose lips sink ships. So he told the king of this private stratagem of Alexandra, whereupon he suffered her to proceed to the execution of her project and caught her in the very fact. But still he passed by her offense, and though he had a great mind to do it, he durst not inflict anything that was severe upon her, for he knew that Cleopatra would not bear that she should have her accused on account of her hatred to him, but made a show as if it were rather the generosity of his soul and his great moderation that made him forgive them. However, he fully proposed to himself to put this young man out of the way by means, one means or another. But the thought that he might in all probability be better concealed in doing it if he did it not presently nor immediately after what had lately happened. Paragraph 3 And now, upon the approach of the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a festival very much to observe among us, he let those days pass over, and both he and the rest of the people were then very merry. Yet did the envy which at this time arise in him cause him to make haste to do what he was about, and provoke him to it. For when this youth, Aristobulus, who was now in the seventeenth year of his age, went up to the altar according to the law to offer the sacrifices, and this with the ornaments of his high priesthood, and when he performed the sacred offices, he seemed to be exceedingly comely and taller than men usually were at that age, and to exhibit in his countenance a great deal of that high family he was sprung from. A warm zeal and affection towards him appeared among the people, and the memory of the actions of his grandfather Aristobulus was fresh in their minds, and their affections got so far the mastery of them that they could not forbear to show their inclinations to him. They at once rejoiced and were confounded, and mingled with good wishes their joy, acclamations which they made to him, till the goodwill of the multitude was made too evident." 
and they more rashly proclaimed the happiness that they had received from his family than was fit under a monarchy to have done. Upon all this, Herod resolved to complete what he had intended against this young man. When therefore the festival was over, and he was feasting at Jericho with Alexandra, who entertained him there, he was then very pleasant with the young man, and drew him into a lonely place, and at the same time played with him in a juvenile, ludicrous manner. Now the nature of that place was hotter than ordinary, so they went out into a body of, and of a sudden and vain madness. And this, as they stood by the fish ponds, of which there were large ones about the house, they went to cool themselves by bathing, because it was in the midst of a hot day. At first they were only spectators of Herod's servants and acquaintances as they were swimming. But after a while the young man, at the instigation of Herod, went into the water among them, while such of Herod's acquaintances as he appointed to do it, dipped him as he was swimming, and plunged him under water in the dark of the evening, as if it had been done in sport only. Nor did they desist till he was entirely suffocated. And thus was Aristobulus murdered, being not eighteen years old, and having kept the high priesthood one year only, which high priesthood Anetilus now recovered again. End of chapter 3, or paragraph 3, chapter 3.